Well, I've been looking forward to this day for quite some time with a mixture of both excitement and some mild apprehensions. The excitements are easy enough to understand because on the Christian calendar, this is the most significant, most important day that we have. Now, we're not primarily about days, but if there was one that was more important than others, this would be it. Because everything that we hope for, everything that we believe, everything that distinguishes the Christian faith from every other religion has been accomplished through the resurrection of Christ. And so, therefore, it is right that we come to celebrate it. But I also came with apprehensions uh, as well, not major ones, but nevertheless uh, very real. Uh, one of which is just in terms of the service, one time each year, uh, we move the sermon part to play the back seat to the testimonies, both those from the scriptures and those of people within our congregation. And I wouldn't want to say or do anything that would detract from those testimonies or from what Nick had shared with you this morning. And recognizing, though, that because it's a worship service, it would be inappropriate for us to come on this day or any other time and not actually hear from God. It'd be like going to a birthday party, celebrating, but not actually interact with the person uh, whom we are there to, uh, to focus on. And so we come to a portion of our service where we'll hear God's word, and it's vitally important because we are hearing from God himself. And while that was one of the apprehensions, that was secondary. That was one that came a little bit later. But the, the primary apprehension started when I realized that Easter this year fell on April the 1st. And I began racking my brain thinking, surely this has happened at some point during my ministry time. And I, I couldn't think of any. And then so I looked it up and found that not only has Easter not fallen on April the 1st during the time that I've been engaged in pastoral ministry, Easter hasn't fallen on April the 1st in my lifetime. Easter's last was on April the 1st in 1956. And so as I began thinking of it being Easter falling on April 1st, the only thing that was coming to my mind is that uh, this day and what we celebrate, wouldn't that have been the ultimate April Fool's prank on people? I mean, that's what people might think. I mean, just imagine you had been there at that time in the days following the crucifixion. And a friend of yours comes up and says something like, hey, you know that, remember that guy, that guy, that Jesus guy, you know, the one that was um, going around and doing miracles and preaching and annoying all of the uptight religious kind of people, you know, the one that they tortured and executed on Friday? Yeah, um... He's alive again. No, seriously, I mean, I saw him. And if you had been there in that time, and if April Fool's was part of the culture, no doubt you would have braced yourself, waiting for the punchline to be delivered the moment that you gave any indication that you were giving any credibility to this story, that this dead person is now alive and walking around again. As soon as you even hinted without saying anything, you're waiting to hear, April Fools! Because this would have been the absolute greatest prank because dead people don't rise. And yet, this one has. But still, you'd be thinking, what kind of fool would I have to be to buy a story like that? And yet that it struck me that that's precisely what makes April 1st the almost perfect day to celebrate the resurrection. 
because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the resurrection is what makes the message of the cross good news. See, the cross is nice news because we are told that it is on the cross that Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. And I in no way would want to minimize that. But had Jesus not been raised from the dead, how would you know? What would distinguish him from every other religious person who came with passion and some wisdom and in his case, sound theology and preached for a while, got on the nerves of the people in power and then died and went to the grave. The only thing that you would be left with was his teaching, his instruction and his memory. There may be some benefit in those things, but they don't give you reason to continue to hang your hope upon all that he said and the promises that he made. Uh, based upon his life and even his death. It's the resurrection itself that not only gives us reason to hope and saying, this is different. But it's the resurrection that was the fulfillment of the prophecies. It's the resurrection that was the fulfillment of the pattern. Because not only would you have no reason to believe if he hadn't risen from the dead, you would have reason to not believe. Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice in the pattern of the Day of Atonement that was held in Israel every single year. In this case, Jesus himself was playing the role of the high priest and the sacrifice itself. But on the Day of Atonement, every single year in Israel, the high priest would prepare himself, then take the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies chamber where he would offer it to the Lord. And if the Lord received that sacrifice, then the priest would come out and all of Israel would shout in celebration, knowing that their sins had been forgiven, they would be able to live for another year. But if the priest didn't come out, it would be an indication that God had not received the sacrifice and therefore the people were still in their sins. In fact, that possibility was, uh, was so real to them that the high priest, as he was preparing to take the sacrifice in, would have a rope tied to his ankle. He would walk in and take that because the thought was, if the sacrifice is accepted, great, he'll come walking out. But if it starts taking a while, and we're not allowed to go in and check to see what's going on, otherwise we will die because none of us can stand in the righteousness and the holiness of God. And so it seemed to be taking a little long. They would kind of shake the rope and see if somebody shook back. And if you shake the rope and nobody shakes back, well, then you know that the priest had died. But if the priest had died, they would kind of pull him out uh, and they would realize that the sacrifice hadn't been accepted. Jesus as him offering himself as the high priest, had he not come out, had he not risen from that grave, every promise that he made not only could be, but should be rejected. And so we find that this day of resurrection is not only no joke, it is essential to the Christian faith. Everything that we believe, everything that has been promised, everything that we hope for hinges upon the resurrection that took place those many years ago.
But the news of the resurrection is still seeming foolish to many people. And while I understand that the, it is seeming foolishness to those who are outside of the church, I mean, it is an absolutely ridiculous story. Dead people don't rise. What is saddening and perplexing to me is that increasingly we are seeing the message of the resurrection ignored and doubted or simply relegated to the category of allegory or myth even from the pulpits of many of the churches throughout our country. And the good news has been exchanged for a good life or for good advice. In other words, while historic and authentic Christianity hinges upon what God has done in the person of Christ through his death and his resurrection, more and more, perhaps because it just plays to our natural religiosity, People are hinging, believing that Christianity hinges upon what we do, our behavior, not our belief. And Paul encountered that kind of thinking to some extent in Corinth. And he wrote to address the issue. In Corinth, specifically, the issue seems to have been people who were believing that Jesus had risen, but even though they were believing in Jesus rising from the dead and believing in salvation in some way, they were having difficulty swallowing the promise that those who are in Christ will also one day rise from the grave. Paul writes to them to say, look, if you're saying there's no resurrection because dead people don't rise, well, then you're saying that Jesus himself didn't rise from the dead because if there's no resurrection, then Jesus didn't do it. And I'm going to pick up there with slightly different emphasis because in that argument, Paul shows us the essential nature of the resurrection as well as giving us a challenge for our lives even while he's encouraging us to continue to put our hope in what Jesus has accomplished. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to just read verses 17 through 21. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And in these words, the Apostle Paul is saying some very important things. First and foremost, he is telling those who would relegate the idea of the resurrection to a secondary doctrine or even just an inspirational thought. He says flat out, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, everything that you believe and everything that you do because you believe is absolutely worthless. That's what Jesus is saying. That itself should give us some pause when we are tempted to just minimize or be not astonished by the day of resurrection and the one who was raised. 
And Paul goes on from there and he, he says this and, and really kind of uh, nailing his point home in, in verse 19, he says, in fact, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, he is making a confrontation to an argument that has been around for many years. People, as they're thinking about the faith, and in fact was um, probably um, distilled or, or is attributed to um, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal, known as Pascal's wager. And Pascal put, synthesized what many people instinctively believe, and, and his argument was basically this, is, you know, if I'm going to believe this and live my life according to the pattern of the scriptures and I'm wrong, then, well, then I haven't really lost anything because I'm wrong and nobody has any hope anyway. But if I was to live your way and either pretend that there wasn't any God or there wasn't Jesus who rose from the dead and I um, and, and just lived any way that I felt and I'm wrong, well, then I have everything to lose. And it seems entirely reasonable and plausible. The first time I heard somebody speak that, uh, uh, that argument, I made sense to me. I was already a believer, but thought, well, that makes sense. And, and it would absolutely make sense, except for Paul says here, no, 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 no. If, if you have hope only in this life, in other words, if you think that it might as well be a follower of Jesus Christ, because what do I got to lose? Then frankly, if it's not true, then you ought to be pitied. You're, piti you're, you're pitiful. You ought to be pitied more than anybody else. We, as a people who have fallen for this, ought to be pitied more than anybody else. And he's not saying that, that because there's something inadequate in the following of Jesus, that we can't have joy, or even because of the things we choose not to do uh, as an expression of faithfulness to Christ and to the holiness and the standards of God. I think Paul's offering a challenge to those who are followers of Jesus Christ, giving us some indication of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In this, he is reminding us that being a follower of Jesus Christ is not simply about getting your sins forgiven and then, you know, feeling good, having a nice, easy life. But he's saying those who are truly the followers of Jesus Christ are those who are called to live a kind of life that is so different than we might otherwise choose that if at the end of our lives that it turns out the resurrection is a hoax, that we have spent our life in a way that would make us pitiful. Hear what John Piper says about the, the whole notion of living our lives and following of Jesus Christ and being pitiful if we are doing so in vain. Piper says this, the call of Christ is a call to live a life of sacrifice and loss and suffering, a life that would be foolish to live if there were no resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus is saying that we are called, when he called to him as his followers, we do receive tremendous benefits and blessings, but we are called to live our lives picking up our cross, pouring ourselves out for the sake of others, sacrificing even suffering so that others might see, hear, and then believe in Christ, being enlisted to join us and also experiencing all of the promises, all of the blessings that are very real that are in Christ Jesus. And yet that kind of sacrifice, that kind of life to which we are called, if we are to follow truly in the pattern of Christ, his disciples, 
and the calling that's placed upon our lives. Living our lives not for ourselves, but we live our lives for somebody else entirely. What fools we are. If in the end it's a hoax. Piper goes on and he says this, God is calling us to live for the sake of Christ and to do that through suffering. Christ chose suffering. It didn't just happen to him. He chose it as the way to create and perfect the church. Now, he calls us to choose suffering. That is, he calls us to take up our cross and follow him on the Calvary road and to deny ourselves and to make sacrifices for the sake of ministering to the church and presenting his suffering to the world. This was the call to which we who proclaim the name of Christ are to follow. And it is an incredible challenge to us. One that shouldn't be taken lightly. One that does, well, suffering means suffering. But also has blessings, a joy that is difficult to put into words. One many, most of you have experienced in some way or another. Promises are all rooted in the reality of his resurrection. And so Jesus is reminding us, even as he's challenging us, the essential nature of the resurrection. Within that is promised. We are able to liquidate ourselves, choose to suffer, give ourselves away, live for other people, because in Christ we are promised to have everything. And then we're told to give it away. But we're able to give it away because we're promised to have everything, and we're not going to be able to outspend God. We will have every blessing, but he doesn't give it to us to hoard, but to pour out. And it's in the pouring out that we also experience it. And so we see the Apostle Paul challenging us to recognize that if the resurrection is not true, then there's nothing that is true. And those who are followers of Christ, at the end, should be pitied, not only for being foolish, but for the lives that we live. Paul makes all the more clear. While it is true that we ought to be pitied if Christ has not risen, he declares emphatically, but Christ has indeed been risen from the dead. But how do we know? And the answer is because there are many witnesses. Now imagine for a moment that you are an attorney that is charged to make a case. How many witnesses would you need? As I understand, traditionally, you need two or three witnesses, and, and you know, was true in Israel, it's true otherwise, is that you know, that's, that's what's required for people to begin to experience some sense of, okay, I, I can trust what you're saying here. And the witnesses need to be credible. In the beginning of this chapter, we see that Paul starts listing those who had witnessed Jesus alive after he had been dead. And we begin, if we look in verse 3, we see first he, he lists uh, Cephas, or, um, or Peter, excuse me, that's in verse 5. And so Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the 12. At this point, there were only 11. Judas had hung himself, but they were still the 12, uh, the numerical thing. It's kind of like the Big Ten that only has, that has 12 teams, you know, one of those things. But, uh, you know, once you get the label, you can't shed it. But... Um, 
And, and some might say, well, you know, that, those are not cre particularly credible witnesses, but we'll get to that here in, in a moment. I mean, they had something to gain by continuing this testimony, but they, nevertheless, uh, they, they said they saw Jesus alive. Then we're told that he appeared to over 500 brothers at the same time. And that's an incredible statement for a number of ways. One of which is, and I don't know how many witnesses you need to be convinced that something is a possibility. Uh, I would assume 500 credible witnesses, independent of one another, would be usually overwhelming to any jury that is going to hear a case being made. And in this case, 500, it says there's more than 500, but we're not sure how many more than 500, because the word here is Adelphois, which is, is uh, translated as, as brothers. And in the Hebrew court, they often, and we've seen this in our study of John, sometimes as they were giving these lists, the only ones that they would count, the only one that would be involved in the census, or adult males. Because they're the only ones that could give a, a, a testimony in a court. They're the only ones that were able to speak. And so even though they sometimes give this, these numbers, the numbers are significantly more because where you're going to have 500 adult males, you're probably also going to have a number of females and children. And so this number could be significantly more. At the same time, it may just be 500 plus because it is also when men and women are together and they use the, the male uh, uh, ending for the, the language. And so, so I don't know whether it's more than 500 or whether we're talking 1,200 people. All I know is it's a pretty significant number, and then when anybody chose to object, Paul makes, the, uh, makes this observation, and most of those people, they're still alive. In other words, look, I, you might want to doubt me, go ask them. And when I write this and this letter gets circulated, anybody, they can say, nope, didn't happen. You know, I'm being asked to testify to something I didn't see. Paul was being emphatic that this many people saw them. Then he goes on and says, after that, he appears to James, Jesus' brother. Jesus' brother hadn't believed in him. I'm not sure exactly when the turning point was for him. I'm assuming that it was after Jesus showed back up. That would have probably done it for most people. You know, my brother's a little nuts. I love him, but he's a little nuts. He thinks he's God. He thinks he's going to, you know, he's going to die. He's going to rise again. You know, but, you know, that's just kind of nuts. And surprise, you know, I saw you die, and here you are again. So, uh, so we, James became one of the primary leaders uh, in the church and was certainly a believer when he saw Jesus alive again. And then Paul says, and he came lastly to me, as Paul had a personal encounter. So I, I don't know, you know, not great in math, but, you know, we've got at least 550 people here that were willing to testify. That seems like an overwhelming number of people. If there was anything back in history, any kind of claim in history, and there were that many independent witnesses that could, be, that could verify it in their day, we probably aren't going to doubt it. And even the disciples who themselves may seem to not be particularly credible witnesses, uh, Chuck Colson says that it was through the disciples that he came to recognize that the resurrection was true. Actually, Colson, if you don't know who Chuck Colson is, he was part of the Nixon administration who was engaged in one of the culprits in Watergate. He was ultimately sentenced to prison along with many who are in that inner circle with Richard Nixon. And, and what he said is it's not the disciples per se. He said Watergate is what made me believe that the resurrection was true. And, and what he meant by that when he, was, when he was writing about it was this. These men in the inner circle with the President of the United States are some of the most powerful men in the world. And as soon as the Washington Post began to expose things, they began to squeal. They were not going to go down by themselves for nothing and certainly not for a lie. And then he says, I look at these 12, these disciples, and they endured through the years of rejection, persecution, 
suffering, martyrdom, and not a one of them recanted their story. And he said, the guys that I knew, nobody's going to stick. Nobody's tough enough to do that. Not one of them cracked. And he became convinced that this is no lie. And so we have the witnesses to the resurrection, which is the hinge upon which our hope rests. And it just seems that it is appropriate that this day we celebrate it. And we are renewed in our hope by turning our attention to believe everything that is promised because Jesus has risen. And rather than being a fool for believing it, you're a fool for not. Father, we thank you for those who have gone before, for your word, and even for the gifts of the apostle who help us put the pieces together that we may see the picture. May we who have gathered here believe in your promise embodied in the person of Christ. Strengthen us, have opportunity to bless one another and then receive the benediction. Go forth in joy to love and serve God in all that you do. Let us bless our Lord. Now receive the benediction. May the God of peace, who raised to life the great shepherd of the sheep, make us ready to do his will in every good thing through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.